Um, We're going to be continuing on in our series in the book of Romans, um, as we have been doing for many, many months. Next week, we have a guest preacher, Will Broadus, who is um, part of the church plant, I cannot remember, Reconcile Community Church across town in Welcome, South Carolina. And he will be with us next Sunday morning, and I will be on vacation for the next 10 days. And I'm excited about that too. I love being with you, and I'll be glad to see you again in about 14 days. So, and then um, we'll be picking up Romans again two weeks from then. And then we have a couple more guest speakers later on in the month. Um, And what we're trying to do is we're trying to have some of the church plants who are going to be a part of Renew with us join us. And so uh, Will brought us, he's going to be at Renew. He's going to be preaching next Sunday. And then on the 23rd of July, um, I'm going to be at an Acts 29 pastor's retreat in somewhere in Texas or something. No, sorry, Tennessee. And... um, Uh, Todd Perkins, who will also be joining us, will be preaching then. And in the end of the month, on July 30th, we have a very special guest from across the world. Um, Seda Sakaguchi will be here with us. Um, It's been a couple years since he's been here. He has helped to plant a church in Tokyo, Japan, where only 2% of the population Um, Less than 2% of the population uh, profess any kind of uh, evangelical faith or Christian beliefs. And so he's going to be here and he's going to fill you in on his plans to go back and help start a second church plant in Tokyo. And so we're excited for him and for what God's doing through um, his work in the church in Tokyo. Well, go ahead and turn your Bibles. And uh, do we have another extra picture up there or no? All right, excellent. We've got a special picture. In case you don't know who this is, it's a little blurry because I had to zoom in and snap it from a video. But this is Aaron Campbell. Um, Aaron was with us yesterday along with a bunch of other guys. Uh, I wanted to say thanks to all the dads um, who came out yesterday and helped make the, yesterday, Friday, helped make the youth event a great time. He was a wonderful sport. That water was 50 degrees and he didn't have a wetsuit on and he jumped all the way in. So um, that was pretty impressive. You can go to the next slide if you have it. If not, that's fine. Okay, great. Here's a group, here's some of our group there. We had like 24 people. It was a great time. Thanks, youth, for being with us. We have some other things planned for the rest of the summer, and I think that's it. Um, We might have one picture of one of the Ramsey girls jumping off a rock. But um, turn your Bibles to Romans 8. Be reading verses 18 to 27. And one of the things we've been doing for the last little while is in order to worship God and acknowledge that there is something unique about his word, we have been standing, and we're going to do that again today. So go ahead and stand, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. And we don't do this out of mere formality. We do this to acknowledge that the only inspired and errant words you will hear this morning it's God's word, and so we, we want to give honor to God's word in a unique way, and we're doing that visibly, physically. So let's read God's holy, inspired word together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is his holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be encouraged through your word. God, there are many who are enduring various kinds of suffering. There are are those of us who are enduring the suffering of our own sin and struggles. There are some who are enduring physical suffering, mental, emotional suffering. Lord, there are many who are enduring suffering here, relational suffering. God, I pray that you would encourage us that we don't suffer for naught. We suffer in hope. And God, I pray that you would also encourage us that we don't suffer alone. We suffer with the hope that your spirit is praying for us in our weakness. God, I pray that you would use your word this morning, that you would enable all of us to hear from you, open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds, Lord, to receive from you. And Lord, would you enable and empower your words as I speak by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been reading through Romans or maybe following along in our sermon series in Romans... You have to be wondering, Paul, why in the world are you bringing these verses up here now? Paul, why are you bringing these verses up about groaning and suffering? You know, you've you've written, Paul's written that there's no condemnation. There's this glorious beginning of Romans chapter 8 where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. And he says, because because Jesus has done what, what we, in the weakness of our flesh, we could not do. And then he goes on to say that not only that, the Holy Spirit gives us life and he enables us and to, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And he affirms that we're children of God and that we've been adopted and all these glorious, wonderful truths. But if you remember at the end of last week, there's this little kind of almost throwaway comment, but it's a significant comment at the end where, where the Apostle Paul is talking in, in verse 16. Look down your Bibles, if you will, please. The end of, of verse 16 and 17 that says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so what a wonderful, glorious truth that is. And it says, And if children were heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. And then he adds a little line there. And he says, Provided we suffer with him. Provided we suffer with him. In order that, or so that, suffering is so that we would also be glorified with him. And so the Apostle Paul is writing these verses because he wants us to understand that the path, the path to glorification, the path to being um, united as fellow heirs with him and glorified with Jesus Christ, the wonderful privilege that it is, that path to glorification, it goes through the path of suffering first. But he explains that it's not suffering that's hopeless. 
It's suffering that has hope. But you might be thinking, you know, as a Christian, wait a minute, the path as a Christian is, is always, every Christian will have a path through suffering before they experience being glorified. Every Christian, every believer in this world, you will have many troubles. You will suffer. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it, Jesus does not promise you the best life now in, in the sense that you're not going to have all the money you need. You're not going to be completely healthy necessarily, and you're not going to have everything go your way. That's not what the Christian gospel is. But the Christian gospel says that he's faithful in and through that, and he is in the process of glorifying you. But you might be thinking, do I really have to suffer? And maybe if you're a Christian, you're thinking, is it really worth it? Or maybe you're not a Christian this morning, and you're here, and you're thinking about becoming a Christian. You're thinking, do I really believe this Christian faith? Do I, do I, is it really worth it? Do I really want to sign up for that? And if you're a Christian here, you might be thinking, is all this suffering really worth it? Some people who claim to believe in Jesus, they will say no and walk away when things get hard. How will you answer the question of, is it worth it to suffer now? How will you answer that question? Paul's answer here in these verses, he gives us hope. But he doesn't give us a false hope. See, Christianity is not, not built and based on this Pollyanna view of everything's going to be perfect. No, it's actually grounded in reality. The glorious truths of the gospel are grounded in reality. But Paul also gives us some wonderful ground, and he says, no, it's by far worth it. It's not just worth it, it's far surpassing worth. Maybe even kind of says, are you kidding me? Is it worth it? Are you kidding me? Is it worth it? Really? Are you even asking that? Is it worth it? And his answer is saying that, that this life of suffering is not even worthy of comparing with the glory that's to be real to us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need that truth. You need to know that whatever suffering you're encountering right now, whatever suffering you will encounter, it, it's not even worthy. It's not that it's not important. It's not that it's not significant. It's not that it's not hard. It's just, it just pales in comparison to the wonderful glory that's to be revealed to us. And so we see this main idea in these verses is that although there is suffering now, our certain hope of glory is greater. Although the suffering now, our certain hope of glory, it's, it's far greater. But the question is, do you really believe that? When you encounter suffering, do you really know, are you certain, do you know that certain hope that, that we have, our hope of glory that's far greater? A few years ago, one of my nephews, in case he ever listens to the sermon, I won't use his name, but... Um, one of my nephews, he was working for several years in rural North Georgia. Um, he was a hardworking guy. Um, he was 20-something, and, but he just couldn't seem to make a lot of money and save. And, and he wanted to get married. He had a goal in mind. He, he wanted to get married. He wanted to have a family, but he couldn't, he couldn't get a job that really paid very much in the area he was in, outside of Tacoa, North Georgia. And, and it's not like the highest income area. And so he heard of this opportunity to move up to Williston, North Dakota to go work on an oil rig. And if you know anything about that, if you heard anything about working on the oil rig job, they, they are extremely dangerous jobs. 
It's an extremely dangerous job, but the reason he went is because the pay was three times his starting pay up there when he first got there was three times what he was making in South Dakota. Now, I'm not encouraging any, by the way, any, any, any young adults, you can't blame me, or your parents, actually, more like you can't blame me if they decide to move. I'm not encouraging that. It's a horrible, horrible job. The conditions are awful. The hours were extremely long. His, his typical week was 80 hours. The job itself was extremely dangerous, which coupled those two things together, a bunch of tired young guys who take a lot of risks um, and long hours in the cold. That's not, that's not a recipe for, for health. The temperatures in the area of North Dakota where he was in the wintertime um, typically in the winter, averaged like between 15 and 30 below zero. For me, that's, that's my idea of, well, a place I never want to go. Um, the, the worker's fatality rate is three times the national average. And, and the job he was in was six times the national average for fatalities. It was strenuous, the towns, the conditions they were in. They were in these man camps, which are just horrible places where they pack people in to these trailers, and the lifestyle is horrible. But he endured all of that. He endured those conditions because he knew that the income he would make if he just stuck it out, if he just endured, if he went through all of those difficulties, all those hardships in his job, if he suffered, literally suffered in the wintertime through hours outside with these big... I don't know what those kind of suits were called, but basically it looks like those emergency rescue suits is what they're outside in in the wintertime. If he survived through all of that, if he, if he made it in a year or two, he could actually make a couple hundred thousand a year. And so he did. He endured. And he experienced those awful working conditions, even though a lot of the kids who went up or people in their 20s went up there, they quit. And he's willing to do the job because he was motivated. He endured the hardship in the cold winter because... Because of the payoff. He knew if he endured, there would be a significant payoff. And, and by the second year, he was making more than I ever made. And he was like 23. He, he, he knew that the payoff was huge, and so he endured suffering. He stuck with it. It was hope. It was certainty of, of what he hoped and thought was a guarantee that kept him there. You know, if you go into a situation and you don't expect it to be hard, and then you encounter it as very difficult, you might be tempted to give up. And you think, what did I sign up for? The Apostle Paul is is trying to make sure that no believer has that idea that what you're signing up for is a wonderful life. It's a glorious life. It's a rewarding life where God is working in and through us, conforming us into his image. But it is a life, a path through suffering. If you think the situation is going to be difficult and you know what to expect and, and, and you have an expectation, it makes a big difference. But a certainty of knowledge makes an even bigger difference. My nephew, even though he thought his payoff was certain, was by no means certain. If he was injured on the job, if, if, um, if he couldn't do the job, if he couldn't hack it. There was, there's not certainty there. Now, he had enough bravado because he was in his 20s to think that he was invincible and that it was certain, but it wasn't. The Apostle Paul, he is talking here in language that's no, there's no questions. 
He talks here in language that says, there is a hope of glory that is certain that you'll receive. And if you keep that hope in mind, your certain hope, then you're going to be able to endure suffering. Because it's better by far as the glory we'll receive. Look, look at verse 18. He says, I consider the sufferings of this present time. He says, they're not worth. They're not worth comparing to the glories to be revealed. Now, when he says that, he's, he's saying, when I, when I consider, and it's that same word for calculating, a reckoning that we've seen in Romans, and when I, when I add it all up, when I weigh the options, when I look at things, not, not with this you know, rose-colored glasses, but when I look at things realistically, the Apostle Paul is saying, when I consider all of these present sufferings, and by the way, he had significant ones. Paul experienced personally significant sufferings even by this time around 58 AD or so. And, and he says, when I consider all of this present age's sufferings, physical sufferings, mental sufferings, spiritual sufferings, you know, emotional, relational sufferings, all those things that he had experienced and seen other believers experience and death as well. He says, when I consider, when I weigh the options, when I weigh that, it, 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 it's of no worth compared to the glory is to be revealed. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he, he talks about some of those ways that he suffered. In, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23, he has to kind of assert his credentials to the Corinthians. And he says, you know, I'm talking like a madman. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. I, I can't say any of those things. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. And by the way, each one of those times, the less one was because they didn't want to kill you. They just wanted to bring you to the edge of death. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, and that wasn't a small thing. People would pass out from getting hit so hard. He says, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You get any idea? He was not unfamiliar with suffering. Now, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, I get it, but you don't understand my suffering, just, just read that list again. But not only that, there are some who will suffer worse than the Apostle Paul and who have suffered worse. And Hebrews tells us about those people who have been drawn into. They, they've been pulled apart. They've been burned alive. There's people who have suffered dramatically. And so if you think about the weight of what he's saying, he's saying, listing all of those things, he says, it's, those aren't even worth being compared to glory we'll receive. How many of us have that view of our suffering? Do, do we really know? Do we think, wait a minute, you know what? My worst suffering, maybe it's beatings or hardships or being whipped or hit with a rod in danger, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food, cold, exposure. What are some other ones? Danger from rivers, shipwrecks, robbers, stoning, being robbed, do you think, do you know that, that the weight of those things, it's not even worth comparing, is what he says. It's not even worth comparing. It's like, it's like comparing, 
you know, you can compare a thimble full of water to an ocean, and there's some comparison. But Paul says it's not even worth comparing. It's not worth comparing. Why? Because he knows the glory we will receive. And, and let me tell you, you need to know the glory we will receive in the midst of suffering. We suffer now, but we have a certain hope of glory that's greater. You know what he, he gives us, in, the first truth he gives us in verses 19 to 22 there is that, that not only us, we, it's not just we who groan, he says creation groans. Creation groans, creation suffers. Creation groans, but in hope of our glory. Creation groans, but it doesn't groan without purpose. Creation itself groans in hope of our glory. What he's drawing attention to is the fact that our glory is going to be so great, is is so amazing, it will be so astounding and affect everything, it's going to affect the created order. Creation groans in suffering, but he does so in hope of glory. Now he's, he's using anthropomorphic language. He's, he's using poetic language here. But he's talking about the fact that all of creation has been affected by the sin of mankind. All of creation has been affected by the sin of mankind. He says though all of creation now, it's like creation is on its tippy toes. When I, when I was younger we used to have this big parade in Winchester, Virginia called the Apple Blossom Parade and 300,000 people would descend on this town of 30,000 and it was hard to find seats where you could see the parade go by. And so often I would be up on my tippy toes like this trying to see as, as different things went by or floats went by that I was interested in. Or sometimes my dad would put me on his shoulders. And I would have this eager expectation, this, this peeking, turning my head sideways, looking down the route. And, and that's, that's that kind of eager expectation or longing that he says creation has. It's like creation is, is eagerly waiting. Waiting. When, when will the sons of God be revealed? Because it's going to be so glorious, and it's going to affect everything. He says, in the meanwhile, though creation groans, creation groans. And the reason why it's, it's groaning, look down at verse 20, if you will. Look in your Bibles with me. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility. It's the same word that Solomon uses for vanity. When he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And Paul uses that same word, but we have it translated here as futility, Creation was subjected to futility. It says not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now, notice there's two important words. It says of him who subjected it. Who subjected it? Not, not mankind. Who subjected it? Oh, God subjected creation to suffering. But there's two important words. It says in hope. God subjected all of creation to suffering, to futility, in hope. In hope. You know, you don't have to look far to see futility around us, do you? Everything that exists, I want to depress you for a moment, but everything that exists struggles to stay alive. But here's the, here's the futile point. It all dies. Everything strives, all the creation. I love the summertime because it's so alive with life. Everything is striving for life and to stay alive. And there's just rebirth and, and, and all the greenery. And I, I love it. But I don't exactly like fall because it, it, it warns me that a death is coming. And the winter, I, I hate winter. It's so bleak. It seems so futile. The seasons even seem futile to me. I know there's going to be a rebirth in the spring, but it seems like there's this futility. 
Everything that sprouts, every creature that's born, no matter what odds it overcomes, no matter how strong the plant or creature may go, one day it will die. Creation has been subjected to futility. And I'm not trying to depress you this morning, but, but you know that. And Christianity and, and the gospel comes in and it comes in to our reality. And it gives us hope in the midst of our reality. In fact, it says, you know, mankind has described what seems to be a law in the, in the second law of thermodynamics and explains the loss of, of heat in an engine. But put in more layman's terms, it, it basically deals with entropy, that everything is heading towards a state of entropy. Nothing stays the same. Physicist Lord Kelvin, he summarizes saying, all natural systems degenerate when left to themselves. Isn't that encouraging? Doesn't that seem a little futile? And, and they've never been able to disprove the law of thermodynamics in a closed system. Creation's been subjected to futility. And it's a, that, that word for subjected, it's that, that word that's used in a military sense when, when somebody is forced to obey, is, is put into subjugation. It's arranged in a military fashion under command of a leader. And so creation has actually been forced in subject, to subjection because of Adam's sin. Was subjected to the curse because of the sin of mankind. Remember the curse when, when he cursed Adam, when God cursed Adam, he said that, that the very earth would, would, would bear fruit, but it would do it through difficulty, through labor, through hardship. It would actually start to bear weeds where before it did not. And so all of creation was subjected to futility. Where before, and we look at Revelation, that one day, Somehow, and I can't even imagine this, one day God's going to restore all things in Revelation so that a child will play and put his hand in the, in the den of a viper. And a lion will lay down with a lamb and eat, and eat grass. And I just can't imagine that. But right now, creation is subjected to futility. I love a quote that a theologian named Fitzmaier, he shared. He says, the world created for humanity in service of it was drawn into Adam's ruin. The blessings given to him, the fertility of the soil, the fecundity of the trees, the brilliance of stars, the friendliness of animals, the limitation of insects, and and boy, I'm sad we lost that. I hate mosquitoes. We're all lost. Because Eve gave Adam, equaling humanity, to eat of the forbidden fruit. And through Adam come not only sin and death, but bondage to decay as it says in verse 21, and the slavery of corruption, which affects all material creation, even apart from humanity. But when God subjected creation to futility, he did it in hope. In hope. You need to see that, that even creation is subjected in hope. And what is creation hoping for? Look down your Bibles. What's creation hoping for there? Creationist says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain what? The freedom of the glory of the children of God. The, the very future of creation is inextricably tied to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When the children of God are glorified, there's going to be wonderful freedom from bondage, from decay. There's going to be set free from that. And all of creation, this glory that's in store for us, for the children of God, when we... When our freedom, our complete freedom is revealed, all of creation will be freed, set free from the bondage to decay. The 
hope that Paul speaks is not the kind of hope that I have when it, that it won't rain on vacation for the next 10 days. I've got no control over that. I've got no control over what's going to happen. I, I can look on the weather channel, but we know that they're mostly wrong, and yet they still get paid. I don't get that. But if you're a weatherman, I applaud you. That's a great gig. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> The word here is it's not, uh, it's not that we hope for like we hope the weather's going to be okay. It's this confident expectation that's based on something true. The Apostle Paul knows it is so certain. It is so true. You can bank on it. One day all creation will be freed from being a slave to, decre- to decay. One day, and right now, although you look around, you can see that creation is groaning one day it's going to give birth. And he uses this analogy. Look down your Bibles in verse 22. Look down your Bibles for me, if you will. It says, for we know that what? The whole creation has been groaning. You see that word groaning. Creation groans. Creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation is groaning. And he says, it's like the travails of a woman in labor. And what a vivid illustration that is. I'm thinking, I've had six, my, my wife has had six kids. I've, I've just been there with her. Um, I can empathize with her, but I can, I can see her pain and her groaning from a distance. But in childbirth, there are pains. There is groaning. First of all, there's the pain, the, the growing pains. The woman's body, it morphs, it's bone soft and organs are deplaced. There's upheaval. And then in a long childbirth, there's pain, there's anguish. And sometimes there's tears and clenched teeth and weird things said and Waves of pain as, as hormones surge and muscles contract involuntarily. And, 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 and can you imagine, husbands, you know, we love to take pictures of babies right afterwards and all their snuggle with mom and it looks so wonderful and looks so great. But let me warn you, husbands, if you uh, have not yet had children and, and you go into the delivery room with your wife, do not take pictures of your wife in her childbirth when she's in the pains of childbirth. When she's groaning, you're going to get in trouble. Don't do it. And, but naturally, we don't want to anyway, uh, unless something's, something's a little off with you. That's okay. I, I get it. But naturally, we, we want to celebrate what's coming. And so Paul says, creation is groaning like that, but there is a certainty, a surety that you have, that we have, that, that there'll, be a re, there'll be a birth, like a birth of all of creation set free from bondage to decay. I, I I groan, it says creation groans like that. I can relate. I, I can't wait. Groaning for glory in hope, eagerly expecting what is coming. When my wife was in labor, I eagerly expected a baby because I knew it was a baby coming out. It wasn't just heart pains or whatever, it wasn't just indigestion. But Paul says that not only does creation groan in hope, he says that we too ourselves groan, but in hope. Look in verses 23 and 25. It says, we groan, but in hope of our glory. Look down your Bible. It says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
Even those who have been given the first fruits of the Spirit, he said, groan. But at the same time, understanding that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, it's a guarantee that we don't groan for naught. We groan because we have hope. And the Spirit is actually the first fruits, the down payment, the, the engagement ring, if you will, given to us the proof that I'm, I'm going to I'm going to be changed. Right? Everything about me is going to be different. Even those who have the Spirit of God, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan because we know we're made for more. Do you ever, you ever feel that way? And, and having the Holy Spirit actually makes you groan more in a sense because you hope and you wait eagerly for what's to come. You ever have that feeling? I know I do. I, my body, as I get older, I can do less, but I, in my head I can still do those things. But if I do things like rafting on Friday, for some reason on Saturday I was sore. And this morning I'm like, why do I ache? You know, we groan. I wait for the redemption of our, of our bodies. But we have a guarantee, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. So we groan with hope. We groan with hope. And that groaning is this kind of, oh, this this sighing inwardly that longs for the world and for our bodies to be fully fully redeemed. That longs not just for the redemption of our bodies, but that longs for the redemption of every part of life. You You might be here suffering physically. You might not be able to do certain things any longer. You might have a physical malady or an ailment, an illness or some physical deformity that, that's happened. You might have groaning because of your own sin. I mean, Romans 7, it, it talks about this battle that's within us, that the very things we don't want to do is what we end up doing. And so there's times when I'm like, Lord, I can't wait. I can't wait. But you might be groaning physically. You might be groaning emotionally. You, you might be groaning mentally. There, you might have unusual fears or maladies or you might struggle with depression or other other mental illness you might be groaning not just physically and mentally and emotionally but you might be groaning relationally because all your relationship ties have been broken or you're suffering in relationships currently but we don't groan without hope we we groan in hope of our glory because we have the first fruits of the Spirit given to us. The same Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, it's our guarantee of glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 2, he says, we are waiting, we are, we are longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And isn't that true for you? We're longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We've been given the Holy Spirit now as a sign, a seal for the day of redemption. And that is what we look forward to. And you can be sure in the midst of groaning, you can groan with hope. But don't lose hope. Don't throw away your hope. Don't forget that you have the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 24, it says, For in this hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. The same hope you had when you were saved that God would deliver you from all of your sins. As you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and in his sacrifice, you were putting your faith in the fact that God punished him instead of you, that you would not be punished in the future and you will never be punished in the future, that God's wrath has already been poured out and it will never be poured out on you. That was the same hope that you were saved in. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, that's what we place our hope in. 
And that's the hope we were saved in. And we're also saved in in the hope not only will we be forgiven, but he's going to redeem all things and make all things new. He says, in this hope you're saved, but hope that's seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You know, if weather forecasters could predict the weather with 100% accuracy because they knew the future, I wouldn't need to hope for good weather. But they can't. You know, lots of people invest in certain companies or stocks or, or bonds because they hope the stocks will grow in value. They hope they'll make money, but they don't know for sure. It's a hope that they don't see the outcome of yet when they invest. You know, in, in December 11th, 1980, that one day before Apple had its IPO, people probably hoped that this risky investment into Apple hoped it would pay off. You know, now we know that that hope was certain, those who did that. And if I could go back in time somehow without changing the timeline, however that works, you know, if that was feasible, I I would give a certain hope to people and say, look, you can invest in this company because I know that in 2017, it's going to be worth 31,590 times more than today. That's that's an astronomical figure, by the way. 31,950 return on investment. Or even just six years ago, seven years ago, if you invested $1,000 in bitcoins, you'd have over a million. The problem is that nobody knows where a stock or a virtual cyber coin's value is going to go. It's not certain. You hope in it. But the hope we have is a certain hope. And the reason why it's a certain hope, how we can know it's a certain hope, is because we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's our guarantee. He's the first fruits. He's the down payment. He's the engagement ring of our final marriage. God the creator himself guarantees it. The creator of all gives us the first fruits and says, I'm good for it. You can have a certain hope. And God the creator of all, he knows all things. He's able to do all things. He he loves us perfectly as his children. You have a certain hope. From our perspective, though, we can't see the time of our own final redemption. So we don't see the fulfillment of our hope. That's what he's saying. He says, it wouldn't be hope if you could see it. If you knew it was going to happen, you wouldn't have to hope in it. But the hope you have is not like the world's hope. The hope you have is a certain hope. Paul encouraged us in his letter to 2 Corinthians. In in 2 Corinthians 4, um, I I think we might have this one on overheads for you. 2 Corinthians 4, he says, So we do not lose heart. Christian, do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. In Paul, 2 Corinthians, about the same time, within a year, he wrote Romans, and all those things I read earlier, that list of his afflictions. He says, for this slight momentary affliction. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You have a hope that is lasting. It's not transient. It's eternal. It will last forever. And in comparison, all of your worst suffering no matter how awful it is, and he's identifying with it, he's just saying, in comparison, it's slight. In comparison, it's momentary. You need to know that, no matter what you're going through. 
in comparison. It's not unimportant. It's actually significant. That's how he glorifies us, through our suffering. We're actually glorified through suffering. And that gives us a proper perspective. We can think, if I am suffering now as a Christian, this is a means by which God is glorifying himself in me. This is a means by which I am worshiping him. I don't need another reason. I don't need to know for sure who will be affected by my suffering, what example I might be. Those are all good things. I can know that God is doing in me. He is is glorifying himself. And one day, no matter your worst suffering, it will be far outweighed by your glory. And actually, the, the link between the two throughout Scripture is there, that, that as we suffer, and, and the more things that we suffer, the more glory there is. Now, don't go looking for suffering. It's not saying that. Although we don't see what we hope for, we wait for it with patience with that eager, on our tiptoes waiting. Is it, when is it coming? I can't wait. I can't wait. I know it's coming. Creation's groaning in hope of our glory. We're groaning in hope of our glory. But even in the midst of suffering, no matter what suffering you're experiencing with sin or sickness or mental or physical or emotional or relational, it's going to far outweigh. Your glory will far outweigh those things. I, I, can't, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. We don't have this for you in overheads, but I'll, I'll put it in the notes online for you. He says, we're to shine like the sun. We are to shine like the sun. We're to be given the morning star. I think I began to see what that means. In one way, of course, God has already given us the morning star. You can go and enjoy the gift of, of many a fine morning if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of, but it, the poets know all about it. We don't want merely to see beauty, for God knows that even knows even that it, 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 it is not bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words We want to be united with the beauty, to pass into the beauty, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That's why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into the human soul, but it can't. They tell us the beauty born of murmuring sound that will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. But if we take the imagery of scripture seriously if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to be put on the splendor of the sun then we may surmise that both ancient myths and model poetry so false as history may be they're very near to truth as prophecy at present we are on the outside of the world the wrong side of the door we discern the freshness and the purity of the morning but they Do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation in lifeless obedience, they will put on its glory, or rather that greater glory of which creation is only the first sketch. There is a glory awaiting us and we can't even imagine how great it is. We'll share in the glory of Jesus Christ, the creator of all. I can't imagine that. 
But you know what? Sometimes we struggle to remember those things. We struggle in the midst of suffering, don't we? You ever struggle? Anybody here struggle? You can raise your hand. Anybody here struggle in suffering? And the people who have your hands down, I, I, either you haven't experienced suffering or you're just not being honest or, or you're sleeping. And that's okay. But Paul gives us more good news of hope. He says, in the midst of groaning of creation and our own groaning is that we're not left alone. The truth we have is that we have a certain hope of glory that's, that's greater than suffering. Why? He says, because the Spirit groans for our hope. The Spirit is groaning for our hope. We groan in hope. Creation groans in hope. The Spirit groans for our hope. The Spirit groans for our hope and until we're glorified. Look at verse 26. Look in your Bibles, please. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit of God, which we've been already given, that if we trust in Jesus and forgive us of sins, he helps us in our weakness. We know we are weak, don't, or at least we, we most of the time know we're weak, right, fellow believer? You know you're weak? But do you know that he is strong? Do you know that he helps you in your weakness? Do you know that it's not distant help? It's not mere platitude. It's active, personal help with the full weight of our weakness. It doesn't mean getting us out of suffering. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that. We, we, the Holy Spirit will not remove us from suffering. No, that's the path to glory. So maybe you're suffering relationally, suffering emotionally, physically. You're suffering with your sin. You're, you're suffering in difficult circumstances or finances. You won't be removed out of those things necessarily. So don't be thinking, well, the Holy Spirit's not helping me because I'm not getting out of my suffering. No, he's going to help you in the midst of your suffering so you can bear up. And it's not distant help, it's active, it's personal. I, we keep some long tables in our garage and we carry them back and forth from our garage to our sunroom because we set them up and we, have, we host care groups over for potlucks. And, um, but the tables, they're old, they're heavy. And they're, they're made out of wood, they're eight foot long, and they're like 50 pounds, maybe not, but it sure feels like it. And my kids, though, they want to they wanna lift those tables. And, and the older ones can do it. But Gideon, he's five. He can't lift that table on his own. And if he tried, he would, he would hurt himself or break something. I mean, break one of his bones. And so he goes to lift the table because they say, hey, you guys, we're going to set the sunroom up. for We're having a bunch of people over, and we're having a potluck, so we're going to set the sunroom up. And so Gideon goes, and he grabs the table. He really can't lift it on his own. But I go to the middle of the table, I lift up the table. I say, okay, you ready? And he lifts it. And I lift the table. I'm carrying 99.5% of the weight. But he's got a little bit. He's got a pound or so. And he's like, oh, oh, this is hard. Oh, oh, oh. You know? And I don't say anything. Don't want to crush him. I'm, I'm helping him in his weakness in the sense that I'm, I'm really carrying the weight. He's carrying something, and he feels like it's, it's huge comparatively. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. There could be no better helper, the same one who helped Jesus in his time on the earth. And it's an excellent promise that if we're struggling to wait for our hope patiently. I know I'm weak. Sometimes I forget that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. How about you? Do you ever forget that the Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness? And do you instead maybe pray for pray in a way that you ought not, something like, God, I, just get me out of everything. I don't want anything. 
no responsibility and no weight to carry. But God's like, that's the only way you get strong. It's by carrying weight. And my little Gideon, if I didn't make him carry the one or two pounds to the table, he would always be a weakling. Now, thanks be to God, he's not. He actually does carry little things, and he tries. And we, so we, we try to max out his weight, not because we're being mean, but because we want him to grow. We empty, we unload the car. And so I give him, I give him something I know he's going to be like, oh, it's too heavy, but I know he can carry it. We have a hope that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And look down at verse 26. How, how does it say he helps us? Look down at verse 26, in the second half of it there. How does it say he helps us? By doing what? You say it out loud. How does he help us? He intercedes. He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Hey, Christian, you don't really know what to pray for as you ought half the time. Sometimes you do. You read God's word. Some things are clear. But you know what? Our motives are never pure. And it says, we don't, we don't pr- know what to pray for as we ought. But here's the really good news. He's not chiding us for it. He's not saying, don't pray. He's saying, hey, pray. Even when you don't know what to pray for as you ought. Here's the good news. The Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Did you catch that word groanings, by the way? Creation groans. We groan. And the Holy Spirit groans. But his groaning's not like ours. Sometimes I, I don't know what to pray for as, as, I, as I ought, and I'm, and I'm aware of it. When things are so beyond me that it, it just smacks me in the face and I say, I, I don't know what to pray for. With my mom, when she was on her deathbed, I didn't, I didn't know, should I, God, should I just pray that she dies quickly? Or should I pray that she heal her miraculously? The day before she died, she laid on her bed groaning. She couldn't pray. But the Holy Spirit prayed with groanings too deep for words. Sometimes this life and all the different kinds of suffering we encounter is so challenging. We're a loss at how, for how to pray. We don't, we don't know how to pray. And, and, and like, here's the thing. One day you probably won't be able to pray. And the Lord willing, if you die quickly, maybe not. But one day you might not be able to pray. Here's what you can know for certain the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. Far beyond your words. Groanings too deep for words. We don't need to worry. We can, we can wait through suffering with an eager, expectant hope, knowing that one day we will be redeemed, knowing that here and now, although we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groanings. But it's not like our groanings. Our groanings are a mixture of groaning. Well, Lord, would you please redeem my body? Creation groans waiting for redemption and, and being freed from decay and corruption. We groan hoping. Now our hope is certain, but we groan because we can't do anything about it ourselves. That's not how the Holy Spirit groans. The Holy Spirit groans interceding for us perfectly. He intercedes for us with groanings. He doesn't groan because he's frustrating. He's frustrated. He, he helps us in our, he actually helps us in our weakness. And then he intercedes for us with groanings that can do something. When he groans, he gets things done. He's not helpless. Look down in verse 27. On the contrary, the Holy Spirit knows exactly what to pray for. This is how he groans. His groaning is informed. His groaning 
has results. His groaning makes it so that we will no longer groan. Look at verse 27. It says, He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit, think about that. It says God searches our hearts, but God, God the Father, he knows what the mind of the Spirit is because it's his own Spirit. God the Father searches our hearts. He knows our innermost thoughts and desires even better than we do, and all the terrible thoughts and desires, all the good thoughts and desires. The Heavenly Father knows all of our thoughts and desires, and he also knows his, his own Spirit's mind. And it says the Spirit intercedes for us according to God's will. The Holy Spirit, God, he knows exactly what you're thinking, what you need the most. He knows you better than you. He knows your desires. He knows how you should pray as you ought. And he knows your mind. He knows the mind of of God. And, And he prays for you perfectly matching up what you need exactly in the deepest longing of your heart and your deepest desires. He knows what idols need to be torn down. He knows all those things, all your struggles. And he knows the will of God. And he prays perfectly bringing those two things together. And that's why we have hope. You don't have to wonder whether or not the Holy Spirit will help you or whether or not he is helping you. He helps you perfectly even when you don't know how to pray or when you pray for the wrong things because you have bad motives and you don't even know it. I was thinking it's good the Holy Spirit knows my heart because you know why? He knows my sin and he knows my temptations. He knows my problems. He knows my longings. He knows exactly what I need. I I might think I do, but the Holy Spirit does. He knows, and he intercedes for me, and he intercedes for me perfectly with the will of God, matching those two things up. He knows how to pray to help me, enable me to overcome every area of weakness and, and sin. Take heart, even when you're confused, the Holy Spirit's interceding for you perfectly. And we don't have time to look at verses 28 to 30 this week, and we're gonna look at them in, in two weeks from now. But in the meanwhile, I want you to see something in verses 28, 29, and 30. Because it kind of wraps up this whole theme of groaning and then glory. Groaning and certain glory. Although the suffering now, we have a certain hope of glory that's greater. Look in verse 28 in your Bibles. Go ahead and look down there. It says, we can co- take comfort from knowing that the, the perfect will the Holy Spirit's praying is he's bringing about is God's purpose. It's not our purposes. He's bringing about God's perfect purpose in our life. That's what he's, he's groaning. He's interceding for us, bringing about God's perfect purpose in our life. And then in verse 29, you can look down there, it says what God's purpose is. He's bringing about the purpose of making us into the image of Jesus Christ. By the way, Jesus Christ who suffered and then was glorified. So we're being made into the image of our suffering Savior. That's what he's doing. And you can be certain you've been called, you've been predestined, he says in verse 29. If you've been called, you've been justified, you've been justified. He already considers you as completely glorified, completely like his son, as as verse 30 reveals. Your future glorification with Jesus Christ, so that you are like Jesus Christ in his glory, is so certain, and the Holy Spirit's enabling, and God considers it already done. He says, if you've been called, you're already glorified. That's how it is. It is certain. You have a certain hope. The Holy Spirit will bring that about in you. There's a certain hope you can look forward to. So Christian, don't lose heart. Don't lose perspective. Don't give up. It's worth it by far. It's not even worth comparing. 
With suffering now, our certain hope of glory is greater. In fact, it's so great when our suffering, our glory are put on either side of one of those old-fashioned scales. You've seen those old-fashioned scales before in the balance, or maybe you've seen it on a picture somewhere of justice, and you have this one side over here is all of our suffering, which is significant, which is important to God, which he cares about. All of that suffering. But just, it's just far as out, far. It, it, it's, it's, it's so light in comparison. Sorry, I did it the wrong way. It's light in comparison. It doesn't even weigh down the scale of all the glory he's going to give to us. Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews 12 says, verse two. He says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's not that we enjoy the suffering, but we endure the cross, despise the shame. It says, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Why? Because we get to reign with him in glory for the joy that's set before us. We can take up our cross and follow him. Amen? Well, let's pray. Uh, Philip, I'm gonna go up, and I think you're gonna sing soon and very soon, I think. Let's pray. Father, I pray that I pray that we would see you, that we would see the, the glory you have waiting for us of what we one day soon will be. And I pray that we would also have hope in the midst of everything, in the midst of creation groaning, in the midst of us groaning. I pray we would have hope in the fact that the Holy Spirit groans for our hope. That he helps us in our weakness and he groans for us perfectly. And that our glorification is guaranteed in you. I pray we would see those things and I pray that you would give us courage and strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.